forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm conflicted about my hair color. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I don't know how to regulate my moods. <laughs> Two equally problematic issues. What's wrong with your hair color? What do you mean? Well, I have another hair appointment. I want to get back to you regulating your moods, but... Uh, it's not important. <laughs> I have... Um, it's really not important. <laughs> it is important. <laughs> I have another hair appointment coming up, and I don't know if I'm... I had originally thought I was going to go back to brunette, but now Why? I'm like... I, I like the, the blonde. What about copper? Yeah, why not? Oh, Melissa seems into copper. Yeah, go like Mary Jane Watson with it. I think my issue is that I don't necessarily like having my natural color with the highlights. Like I kind of want it either to be all a different color or I don't know. But but we're into the idea of going more reddish. Yeah, and even like lightening it up. I mean, I like you with your hair when your hair is dark, like brown but I you know I like this lighter color too in your um author photos it like brightens your face oh thank you okay so maybe I'll ask for more color and and have it be a reddish blonde yeah I like that this has been really helpful I appreciate it you're welcome I'm just here to help (laughs) super you know here to help what's going on with you you're not doing so hot No, I'm okay. I'm just depressed, but I'm fine. I mean, there's not really a reason for it other than like uncertainty Mm -hmm. and just waiting. Like all I am, I'm just waiting. You know, there's been a lot of humbling experiences in terms of good things happening, but then needing to rewrite them a lot. Mm -hmm. So like things are going well. I just, if you're just someone who's like consistently getting critiqued for months at a time at a certain point you it gets to you but also I have to be like I'm really grateful to be here it's really amazing that I'm even at the stage where these people are critiquing me like this is good it will only make things you know the the outcome of the project better but like I had one thing that I thought I wasn't going to get notes on and then the woman came back yesterday and was like we're also going to give they don't know also they just everybody knows their individual project and so this person was like we want to give you notes on this. And I was like, I thought I didn't. I thought, but no. So I just Mm. like, um, I think the word rewrite is triggering to me right now. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard. It hurts your Mm self-esteem because you're like, objectively, I'm in a great spot. But I have to divorce the idea that they want to rewrite from I'm garbage. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work to do that. And it's hard. And like, but then like nothing... Like, I had a great time on Wednesday night, which was Mal and I went to the Picard premiere, which we love Star Trek. And we went and had like a good night. But like leading up to going, I was so socially anxious. And I just kept being like, you're you're a piece of shit. Nobody there's going to know you or like you. You're, you know, like you're going to have terrible social interactions with everyone. Like I was like psyching myself out so much. And then we got there and it was great. Mm hmm. But I just was like in the car being like, I would, I, I don't know. Being in entertainment was a mistake. <laughs> and like, do you ever think like about people who are not in entertainment and feel somewhat jealous? <laughs> yes. So I have, I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, you know, it's almost like we're living like a gambler's lifestyle. 
Yeah. In that, like, there's the opportunity for, like, big, big wins that wouldn't be available if, like, we had a more steady nine to five. And then there's also the possibility of of nothing. <laughs> of not making any money for, like, a year Of not making anybody at right. all. Yeah. And so it's big risk, big reward if the reward even comes. But it also makes your life a little more exciting, you know, like every single day is different. I never feel like I'm stuck in the monotony of something because I'm always working on something different. Yeah. But it is really hard. And I think that I've maybe hedged my bets a bit to accommodate for that like anxiety by shifting more into a space that isn't necessarily what my first choice would be creatively, but which mm-hmm. seems to have a bit more stability in doing like more nonfiction writing mm-hmm. where like even though like my true love is is scripted writing and mm-hmm. fiction, but that world got a little too unsteady and I wasn't getting rewarded in it. And so I, you know, I kind of had to like shift a bit. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting thing to be in this industry where the whole idea is like follow your passions and your dreams, but also be like, and also be realistic and take what opportunities come to you. <laughs> yeah, I just, I sometimes I'm like, this was a mistake and you should have just like gotten married at 21 and just like had a nice life. <laughs> How would getting married solve your career issues? I just like you should have stayed in your hometown and you should have stopped trying to reach for the stars and you made them and you you brought this upon yourself and you should have just here's a problem is that I'm like you should have just been cis and heterosexual and not wanted anything out of life. (laughs) I don't know. I just I think it's that thing of I just worry about the future and like how sustainable it is to not work a nine to five, to not be at the same company for like 30 years. You know, like my brother's been at his company for like 25 years since he was like 21. And he's just like, I work at my job and then I have money and I don't have kids and me and my wife go on vacation and buy nice clothes. And I'm like, see, this seems great. And he doesn't care about his job. There has been a real big shift, though, where people don't stay at their job the same way that they used to. I know. Across industries. I know. So, like, that's not really even what it's like anymore for a lot of people. Oh, I'm full of shit. Like, I'm romanticizing a life that doesn't (laughs) exist anymore. I And, like, I'm very lucky to be where I am. And I just have to keep being, like, you're so lucky to have these opportunities. You're lucky to even be anxious about this. You also might just be kind of going through a depressive episode, and that's okay, too. Obviously, you might just have to ride it out a little bit Ugh. and give yourself a little bit more care and nurture than than in other times. Ugh. I know it sucks. I don't want to have to. T- why is this a constant thing? I wish. Why do I have to always take care of myself? Because that's how life works, baby. Anyway, this is just between us. <laughs> a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Is this what the people want? The people want just me being like, you know, why does life have to keep continuing on a linear timeline where I have to make sure that I'm okay for all of it till forever? That seems unfair. When's your next therapy appointment? I have to keep making money, keep waking up, keep eating food. This is a scam. I think you're just not feeling good right now. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't sign up for this scam. I know, but I don't think that you will feel this helpless and hopeless always. I think you're just going through a, a rough patch. Fine.
But so maybe you have to, even though right now you don't want to care for yourself, now it's maybe some signals that you have to. I do. I I still work out. I still do all the stuff. I just like feel like I don't want to. But even just in your brain being like, it's okay that I feel this way. Yeah. Of just like, okay, I'm not feeling, not interacting with those thoughts as much. <sighs> just sort of saying, okay, yeah, it is annoying that I have to feed myself and then feed yourself. Do you know what I mean? I want to read a, a nice Apple review just to shift gears if that's okay. Sure. If you leave us a five-star Apple review, we may read it on the show. This Apple review is from Nat GS, and it says, My favorite podcast. This podcast truly has it all, from Allison's incredible mental health insight to Gabby's wisdom and perspective on all things queer to their fascinating guests from a variety of fields and expertise. Every episode is full of nuanced and engaging conversations on relationships, social justice issues, science, psychology, and just about everything in between. This is a very relevant review because our guest today is Jared Towers, who's going to talk all about whales and whale conservation. And Allison and I are always thrilled to have an animal expert. <laughs> we do both almost start crying. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I love making this show because I love that our guests are just anything that interests us. And so that mm -hmm. review was like basically everything I could have ever hoped for in a review. <laughs> Right. Yes. And later, we're going to be taking on a topic we have tried to address before, but got completely derailed from. So it is going to be boredom take two, baby. And this time, oh, man, will we bore you? Yeah. Well, uh, wait, did we talk about this on air that we were like, would you guys be interested in an episode where it's just me, Melissa and Allison just chatting and there's no segments? Oh, we never talked about it on air, no. Yeah, let us know if that would be of interest to you in any way. I promise to be in a, a better mood when we do it. You don't have to be. Okay. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer our listeners' question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Haley, Arizona. Haley's TLDR is... How can you tell the difference between burnout and just regular old motivation issues? No, this is what I was upset about in the intro. <laughs> Haley, no. <laughs> Hi, all. For as long as I can remember, I've always had a really rough time being able to put in effort, be it homework, Ugh. work responsibilities or relationships. I always seem to have the ability or smarts to get by, but I just can't put in the effort to actually get anything done. It often feels like I'm holding myself back in my career and schoolwork due to my own laziness. Over the years, and with the help of therapy, I've come to realize that some of this is due to anxiety. I overthink tasks in my head, become anxious, and then avoid them to cope. I am working managing this and pushing myself through anxiety, but I've now come across a separate problem. How can I tell if I'm avoiding things because of anxiety or if my anxiety is being caused by me overworking myself? I am currently in my last full semester at university, I'll be doing a summer session to graduate in August, and I've been working towards the goal of graduating with my bachelor's in three years instead of four. Mm. However, due to both COVID and my advanced schedule, the past two semesters, I've been taking an average of 20 credits. This semester especially has been a roller coaster between productivity and depression. One week, I'm ecstatic at having the motivation to work for three hours straight, and the next week, I'm laying around watching TikTok for 20 hours a day. I'm in a low patch right now and have begun to consider dropping a class and retaking it over the summer. 
However, I can't tell if this is just me avoiding my work and the stress it causes me, or if I would actually see benefits from the delay. It feels like I'm being lazy and giving up too easily, especially when I compare myself to the other seniors in my program. On the other hand, I can't deny that I'm not doing so hot mentally, academically, or in my job. If I'm being honest with myself, I know what I want the answer to be, and it's removing some of the stress from my plate. I just feel really guilty, as I know I could do the work if I just had the drive to get it done, and it feels like another failure of my willpower. At this point, I don't even know if I could manage to pass my summer semester, as even with less work, I'm still incredibly unproductive. Thanks for reading this if you do. Listening to the podcast has always been a really calming activity for me, and your advice has helped me a lot over the years. It's weird to say, but I've really enjoyed growing up with you guys, as well as watching you all from your early 20s to 30s. You've given me so much hope for the future, as well as joy in the present. I hope your week goes well. Okay, first of all, Laziness Does Not Exist by Dr. Devin Price. And Devin Price was a guest on our show. And that is a book that you need to read. Secondly, do not compare yourself to the other seniors in your program. Comparison is the thief of joy. I think the Buddha said that. I actually don't know who said it, but it's true. And also, what did I just, I just talked about this in our intro, but there, I also have shifting motivations to not being motivated. And that's, that's just human. That's just being a human. I think you're viewing yourself as some sort of like robot that has to be like at 110% at all times, but like nobody really is. So I picked this question because it was incredibly relevant to a decision I actually made in the last couple of weeks. So I started a program in clinical psychology in January 2020. And when I started the program, I thought that maybe I would become a licensed therapist as sort of a backup plan in case, you know, this very turbulent career that we've been talking (laughs) about didn't work out. And over the last two years, I've been really lucky in that it seems like I have some more stability in my writing field and that like by learning more about what it means to be a therapist, realize that that doesn't really align with my goals or what I would want to do with my life, a large part due to the amount of paperwork involved, (laughs) which sounds silly, but you know, it is a very, to be a therapist, it's a really high stakes thing to be, right? You have a lot of liability, you have a lot of responsibility, there's a lot of legality to it. And it just didn't feel like something that I wanted to pursue, but I was still in the clinical psychology program. And that program involves something called practicum, which is getting hours done, right? So it would be clinical hours where I was working with clients and um, basically being a therapist trainee. Mm -hmm. And it's a much bigger commitment during those three semesters when you're in practicum than when I'm just taking classes because you're you're doing hours and hours a week at your site. And I started to dread practicum. I became incredibly anxious about practicum. Anytime I would talk about my program, I would bring up practicum and how I was freaking out about practicum and when was I going to do practicum. And I postponed when I was going to do it. It it was like this thing that was like heavily weighing on me all the time. And then, you know, I talked about it with enough people and there's an there was an ability to switch from the clinical program to just getting a master's in psychology. And the master's in psychology doesn't require practicum because a lot of people that take that program, their intention is to go on and get a PsyD or a PhD. And so it's a quicker program so that you can go right into getting the higher degree. And like with those degrees come the hours. But if I made the switch, so many of the classes that I've already taken don't go towards the degree. Ah, fuck. And I would have to take all of these classes that are much more sciencey that don't 
interest me. Like, I don't want to take scientific writing, <laughs> you Ugh. know, but I, I realized and I like and it was this really wonderful kind of new experience of, of listening to myself that this anxiety that I was feeling about practicum and the fact that like the time requirement of practicum meant that I might never be able to complete the program was weighing so heavily on me that despite the downsides of switching to just getting the master's in psychology, it was worth it. Mm -hmm. So I like made the decision that like in the last two weeks, I switched from getting a degree in clinical psychology to getting a master's in just psychology. Mm -hmm. And me a couple of years ago would have been like, you failure. Mm -hmm. How did you not go through with your goal? It is way less impressive to just have a master's in psychology than clinical psychology. Why? Most people would not I know. Literally, what the would never is. know that. <laughs> would never know that. It would be like, but then you're not allowing yourself the opportunity to ever get licensed in the future. If you, if your writing career does fail, then like this, the amount of time you put in doesn't even make any sense. You've wasted all this money on classes that don't even go towards this pro. You know, like there, like I could just like me a couple of years ago would have very much gone down that path. But me now, and this is like where I can really, really see the work that I've been doing in therapy and with myself. Me now said, you have to listen to what your mind is telling you. And you have to look at the realities of your life and your capabilities. And practicum was a major issue in your life. Mm -hmm. It was causing me so much undue stress and worry. And also practically, I didn't know if I'd ever even be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now by switching to the master's in psychology, I know eventually I will be able to take all of those classes mm -hmm. because they're offered at night. Even if I have to go slowly, even if my I'm lucky enough that I have so many career commitments, I can only take one class a semester. Over time, I know I will be able to complete that degree. Mm -hmm. And so it was this really like wonderful learning experience for me, which I really think speaks to a lot of what you're saying about this one class and dropping the class and, and, and messing up your timeline and, you know, all these expectations you put on yourself is you have to work with the reality of your situation and you have to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. You said it even in the email that you know what answer you want. You want the mm -hmm. answer that says you can drop the class. So you know in your heart that that's what you need to do. And not only do I want you to drop the class, I want you to release yourself from the guilt of dropping the class. Absolutely. I dropped a class this semester for the first time in my life. And like I could have be, and now it's going to delay my graduation. I'm still going to have to take it. I'm still it's like a, you know, kind of I didn't really solve anything. Right. But I could tell that I wasn't capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. And so much of being in touch with ourselves is understanding that we're not able to deliver at the same rate all of the time. Yeah. And sometimes we need breaks. Sometimes we need a lesser workload. Sometimes we can take advantage of when we're feeling better, but you cannot, ex you're not a machine and you can't expect the same output day after day, year after year. I just relate so much to this email. And I wanted to point out that this is a thing that I literally say to myself all the time is that I have the ability or smarts to get by, right? I always say that I can get by, but I'm not actually like, thriving or whatever it is. But like getting by is an achievement. Being able to get by. What do you mean by get by? And I always have to like re like go over in my mind what I mean by that, where I'm like, well, I'm able to make money from being a writer, but I'm not able to like reach this level of success that I've built up in my mind. And it's probably because I sleep or I don't, you know, go, go, go 24 hours a day, that whole like toxic thing of like, you have the same 24 hours in a day as Beyonce. And it's like, you don't have the support that Beyonce has. So like, 
getting by is amazing. Getting by is uh, something you should be so proud of yourself for. And like, I, I think this idea that everybody else is doing better than you, that everybody else is so much more productive than you are, that's just false. And even if it is true, I don't know how to explain that productivity is as a way of viewing if you are a good, worthy, acceptable person who like deserves to be happy is so toxically imprinted on us by all of society in a way that like time wasted doing something you like is not time wasted, which I know I think is a John Lennon quote. And we can go over how John Lennon is problematic. But like, I don't know. I, I just think there's this lack of appreciation for like making it through the day, <laughs> for like making it through your class, for turning it in, for getting a B plus and passing, even if it's not an A plus. Like, I think like there's all these impossible standards put on us that we don't stop and appreciate what we have done, what like we have been able to do. And, you know, it, and the ability to start over tomorrow. Oh, I spent all day today just laying around watching TikTok. You needed to, you know, like you're tired and like, that's okay. I also think that we put so much emphasis on external signs of success, mm -hmm. right? Like, did I get the promotion? Did I get the raise? Did I, you know, did I sell this thing? Mm -hmm. What I would want to shift your focus on is your internal life, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're miserable while you're selling the thing, getting the promotion, mm -hmm. doing all of your work, what value is there to that? You know, like if, if if all of your success is you being so unhappy. Uh, completely. But like if you instead, maybe you take a little longer to graduate from school, maybe you give yourself a little bit more leeway, but then you're just a happier person. Mm -hmm. The trick is that in a lot of times when you're happier, you're going to end up either accomplishing the same amount that you would have otherwise or figuring or just out different like, priorities, figuring out different priorities and, and feeling just as satisfied in your life as as you probably were and even when you were miserable, but a, a productivity machine. I've been thinking about that a lot because I especially Haley's use of the word willpower, where I'd be like, if I was just better, if I was just a little better, if I was just a little smarter, if I was just a little more like dedicated to my work which I say about myself all the time. I say it now. I constantly say I'm good enough to get close, but I'm not good enough to win. I say that to myself in my low moments all the time. And I think like now I've started being like, you know what? It, it benefits me to hang out with my friend. It benefits me to sit for a moment and like not, you know, see the hours of 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. as missed opportunities for working. It's hard. It's really, really hard. It's hard to give advice to Haley in the sense that like I could have written this email. <laughs> but I mean, I think that that also speaks to if you're in that mindset of I have to be productive 24 seven, I have to be my best self all the time, then it doesn't even matter where you are on the ranks of success, because I think a lot of people would look at what you're doing and say, wow, they're doing it. They're doing all the things I could never do. But then just to find out that you're feeling all of those ways there too, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so the issue is not the actual external accomplishments. The issue is my relationship to myself and productivity. And that mm -hmm. is something you have much more control over than the external accomplishments. Yeah. Which is empowering, I think. Yeah. And, and it helps you prioritize. I think your body tells you, your mind tells you what to prioritize. 
if I see something and it gives me anxiety, I'm I don't and I can somehow be like, I don't want to do that. Even if I'm letting someone down by being like, I actually can't do this. You know, I have to actually pass on this podcast. I actually have to drop a class. I actually have to, you know, like you said, with practicum, like what you're worried about is maybe a sign. Yeah, it'll change. And just like so much of it is just knowing that how you feel right now will not last forever, but that Mm -hmm. you do have to be checked in with yourself about maybe where I'm at right now. I'm not the same as I was six months ago where I could study for 12 hours a day. And that's okay because I don't know where I'll be in the future. Mm -hmm. But I do know that if I don't take care of myself, I'm heading down the wrong path. (laughs) So hopefully that helps. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Jared Towers. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Jared Towers, the director of Bay Cetology. Jared's work primarily revolves around studying the movements, behavior, abundance, and ecology of cetacean populations using direct observations and remote sensing technology. Basically, we want to talk about whales. Hi. Yes. Hey, (laughs) thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, thank you for being here. We're so excited. (laughs) Yeah, we love doing animal episodes and we love learning all that we can about conservation for these animals. So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. I can talk about whales all day long. So, you know, (laughs) I understand you only have an hour, but uh, let's do it. I guess my first question is, why whales? What in your background led you to this being your expertise? Yeah, well, that it's it's quite simple. I, I live in a little town, a remote um, coastal village called Alert Bay, and the slogan for the town is called Home of the Killer Whale. And this is where I spent all my summers as a kid. And my parents at the time owned the whale watching company. So when I was young, I would be out on the water every day with killer whales and, and other whales like minke whales. And so I just had a a natural curiosity from a young age. And there was also a a lot of researchers working in this area at the time, and there still are. And so I think that provided really good um, mentorship and and also inspiration for me, you know, as I grew older. And so what are some misconceptions that we have about whales? Like, what are some things that you feel people always think are true that aren't or, you know, what kind of things blow people's minds when you tell them? (laughs) Yeah, I think at least for killer whales, you know, killer whales are are so famous, you know, they're black and white and and they're, you know, social and intelligent and, and they're also you know, gory, you know, they're fierce and, and strong and they'll, they'll take down whales far, far larger than them. But, you know, when you talk about these animals and put them into a a social context, you know, when, when people learn that they live as long as we do, and they travel around in cohesive units with all their family members, basically all their maternally related kin, um, and that they have post-reproductive lifespans, just like humans do, I I think that makes them a lot more relatable, and people um, kind of identify with them and, and get to know them. You know, for example, I'm 42 years old now, and and a lot of the whales that I knew when I was a kid are are still around, and I've watched them grow and and have kids of their own and and turn into grandparents and yeah and, and so over time you know the more we've learned about whales you know the more we we've come to identify with them I think 
I was going to ask, like, the, even the name Killer Whale, I'm surprised to hear you use that because I would think that was like bad PR. I know, right? So <laughs> Killer Whales, there's, there's this there's this big debate, you know, Killer Whales or Orcas. And, uh, you know, when you break it down or, or seeing a Sorca, the Latin name uh, translates basically to a demon from hell. So what's better? <laughs> Killer whale accurate? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, so killer whale is a common English name for for the species, and in ninety some odd percent of scientific literature, that's what they're referred to. You know, you can call them orcas, and I I use the terms interchangeably because I don't really want to offend anybody, and I don't think it's that big of a deal. Some people really have a hard time with with either of the terms, but you know, getting back to why they were called that dates back to uh, the early days of whaling when when whalers would find that killer whales would would also be out there taking taking down large whales far bigger than themselves and w- when these animals do kill something it can be quite dramatic and quite obvious and that's where the name came from uh, there are different kinds of killer whales some that only feed on marine mammals and some that only feed on fish and others which which feed on a wide variety of things and so a lot of people have a hard time calling the fish eaters killer whales specifically. But when you think of it, they're actually killing more because they need to kill more fish to, to stay alive than, than the mammal eaters that just kill, you know, one large item every day or two. You touched on this a little bit, but I would love to learn more about the social dynamics of these animals, because I think it's pretty complex or more complex than we think it is. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the most outstanding things is that adult males rarely leave their mother. So you'll have a a 40 or 50 year old adult male traveling with a 70 year old mom, and they've never been outside of acoustic range of one another, which is in really good conditions, maybe five miles or so. And in, you know, if they're living in an archipelago or coastal waters, it's, it's much, much closer than that. Yeah. That's one of the most interesting things about the social dynamics of these animals. But there's a lot of benefits for them to to live in social groups when it comes to feeding. You know, they 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 have the ability to detect resources over a, a broader area if they're traveling in these social groups and they're spread out, each looking for food. Then, if if one animal finds something, they can communicate with each other through the water and. And uh, and you'll often see that happen, actually, and and all the whales will will come together in one area if if one whale has killed a fish or something, and you know you see these animals rarely eat anything without sharing it with with their family, and these these sharing events typically take place between the individuals that are most closely related, as you would expect, like mother and offspring, sometimes brother and sister, or or sister and sister, or just siblings in general, and less often. And cousins and members from different families. In some populations of killer whale, each family has its own unique dialect. So uh, it's almost like an acoustic badge that they wear wherever they go so that they're basically calling out, you know, we're over here. And, and if another family is around, they know who's there. And, and they also have their unique signatures as well. And, and so even today, I, I have an acoustic uh, hydrophone network in the area that I live in. And I can monitor it from home. So at the moment, we have a, a family of whales called the I-15s in the area. And even before going out and seeing them, each whale looks a little different. And you can identify them just by sight or photograph. But 
I already knew who they were because of their sounds, which is really nice. If I if I don't need to see them, I can stay home and I don't have to worry about going out on the water and getting cold. <laughs> wow. So are the, so do they recognize you? Like do do they know who you are? I don't know. It's a super good question. I I think that they know the boat, and it's fair to say that they recognize the acoustic profile of my vessel, and and probably a lot of different vessels on the coast. And you know, if they hear me coming, it seems to me like they they understand that that I'm the boat that's going to get a little closer than the others, having a research permit to do so. And and at least where I live, in conservation of killer whales is is taken quite seriously. So there's a lot of laws around how close you can get and how long you can spend with them. So I feel like even if they did know me, they probably don't like me that much because (laughs) I'll go in and, and, uh, and, and get close to them and, and collect the samples I need to, and then back off again. Yeah. That was something I wanted to talk about because on your website, you talked a little bit about how to do (sighs) conservation in a humane way, but also that conservation efforts and research efforts do sometimes negatively affect the animal. So can you speak to that a little bit? You know, it's something I put on the website because I I can't help but notice it. I, you know, I'm I'm primarily a a field researcher. And so I spend a lot of time uh, easily over 100 days on the water each year, um, most of which are with killer whales and and other species of cetacean for, for various studies. And I can't help but notice the impacts that my own work has on on the whales from time to time and you know i'm i'm going off of subtle cues um in their behavior but but really that's all we have to go off of these whales spend over 99% of their water of their time underwater and it often takes um detecting subtle cues just to realize what they're doing so sometimes when i show up after perhaps biopsying an individual in a pod and then watching the entire family react to that that biopsy shot, you know, if it, a week or two or even a few months can go by, and I can approach them again, and it it feels to me like sometimes they're less tolerant of my approach because they recognize oh. you know who I am and and what I've done in the past. So, I think building trust and building relationships with these whales is is something that's really important, and it's hard to do that as a researcher sometimes and. You know, these data, like biopsies, for example, are are really important in, you know, in order for us to assess the the toxin loads these animals have and and how our own impact on the environment uh, impacts their health. You know, a lot of killer whales feeding at the top of the food chain have bioaccumulated a lot of toxins. So we wouldn't know that without being able to do biopsy sampling, which is really you know, quite benign. And, you know, it, it has never been known to kill an animal or or cause much harm to them. But it's the more so the fact that they're not expecting it. And it, it does cause a little pinch. It's kind of like us getting bitten by a horse fly or something like that. And so I think that they just, you know, just want to maintain a, a bit further uh, distance from from researchers doing that kind of activity. And and you can take it to the next level, too. I, I know that um, biopsying is one thing, but but tagging is another, and and some of the mm. tagging methods can be quite invasive, and have led to death in in some whales. So, as researchers, we really need to weigh how important our questions are, and if it's really worth risking the lives of the subjects in order to get answers. And in some cases, it may be, but in in a lot of cases, it's probably not. Yeah, like where are we at with the whale population? You know, like from 
long time ago to now, are we, are they going extinct really rapidly? Are we losing them a lot more? You know, how is it climate change making it so that the populations are thinning? Like, where are we at from back then to now? Yeah, it's a complex answer because there's so many populations and all over the world, you know, ecosystems are changing in different ways. And if you look at um, the recovery of whale populations post whaling, and most of the commercial whaling happening on the planet ended in the 1960s, 1970s. In some places, it still occurs, but on a relatively small scale. But a lot of these populations that were targeted, like blue whales, fin whales, humpbacks, and even right whales, are recovering in a lot of the different oceans. So it's it's kind of like good news stories for 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 whales around the globe. You know, this last uh, kind of 10, 20 years, as we're beginning to see the return of of these healthy whale populations. Having said that, though, in certain places where where whales used to exist without having to deal with a lot of human impacts, and, you know, human impacts are growing in, in places where there's, there's busy population centers. And so cetacean populations in areas like that uh, really have it difficult. Like several river dolphin species, for example, they're, they're suffering because of problems with, with human behaviors in the areas that they live in. Where I live in particular, um, there is a population of killer whales nearby. And because they've probably existed for generations and, and over thousands of years have evolved in these coastal waterways, which um, now contain millions of people between the population centers of Victoria and Vancouver and Seattle. They're having to deal with a lot of acoustic pollution. Their favored prey items like Chinook salmon and chum salmon and coho salmon are, are dwindling in abundance. And so, so they have it really hard because, you know, we're, you know, it's basically a challenge coexisting with each other. So what are some of the the questions that you're trying to answer with your research or, you know, what are you trying to either figure out or keep track of? Well, primarily keeping track of population abundance is is one of the things that that we do. One of the things I I personally spend a lot of time doing is is photo identifying whales. And we use that as a tool to to track not only their movements, but also their abundance. And and that's one of the first questions in, in any kind of conservation-oriented research is, is how many are we dealing with? So when it comes to killer whales and the populations that I work on here in British Columbia, we have a very fine-scale idea of how they're doing when it comes to abundance because we're photo-identifying them several times a year. And that's first and foremost one of the most important things I'm involved with. But, uh, you know, I can elaborate into all the, the side projects that, that kind of, you know, spin off of that work. Please. <laughs> yeah, like, what are they? Well, you know, I, I don't even really know where to start. I recently got back from a, an expedition to the Indian Ocean where I was um, tasked with, with doing some field research on killer whales down there on the high seas around the Crozet Archipelago. And... You know, just finding killer whales in that environment in the first place is really difficult. But when I was there, I was basically tasked with with trying to figure out or at least collect some evidence towards trying to understand why the population is dwindling. And there's about 100 animals in that core population. And it's not really known why the, the population is decreasing. And, and, you know, those 100 animals, it's not, not a very big population size to begin with. So... 
it's it's kind of concerning and i must admit that i didn't get too far you know i had no eureka moments while i was down there but but i was able to to see the animals and and get a, an idea about their behavior and their movements and and probably came back with more questions and answers but you know whenever it I go to sea on these expeditions or even just working from home in coastal waters. I'm always, you know, keeping an eye out for interesting things, you know, like things that, that I didn't expect or, or kind of knowledge gaps along the way. And, you know, during that expedition, you know, I, I did, I did find some very interesting whales um, right out in the middle of the Indian ocean that, that had never been seen in that region before, which, which was very cool because it extended the known range of, of that species by, by thousands of kilometers. And, and just through collecting photographs of them from the ship, uh, I was able to determine that they were shepherd's beaked whales. And yeah, there's, there's no previous records of that. In fact, it was only the, I think it was the 22nd time they've ever been seen alive, you know, by anybody on the planet. So that must've felt pretty special to be one of those 22 people. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's those little things that kind of keep me motivated out there. You you never know what you're going to see. And it feels like the planet's getting smaller, but you know, that's just because we're, we're building our knowledge uh, about everything and uh, that lives on it and our relationships with them as, as we go. So it was probably the first time those shepherds beak twails had ever seen people too, you know, <laughs> or <a boat. laughs> you hope you're a good, like em- emissary, you know, you're like, hi, I'm Jared. Please don't right. hate me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Turn around and swim back this way so I can get a better look at you. <laughs> so are you going into the water with them? Like to get the biopsies? Like how does that all work? No. So it can be done in the water. Um, I know people who have done it, but yeah, generally speaking, most of the biopsy work happening all around the world just takes place from a boat. It's a remote biopsy technique. So you're, you're projecting a, a little arrow uh, that floats at the, the back of a whale. It just collects a little sample of blubber and skin when it hits the whale and then it bounces off and, and you just drive over and pick it up. Oh, okay. I thought you were like, doing some kind of like needle or something, but it's very non-invasive. Yeah, it's, it's relatively non-invasive. If you, if you use like a, a crossbow to, to get your biopsy sample on a small cetacean, it, it can be fairly invasive. But mm-hmm. uh, what I typically use is a, a pneumatic rifle with different power settings on it so that if the whale is quite close, I can, I can power back. And if it's a little bit further, I can add a little bit more power. So it's, it's not hurting the whale at all. It's just Mm -hmm. surprising it for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) I had a question Mm -hmm. in terms of whaling. And I mean, this is probably a sad question, but you hear about this with elephants a lot. Because they go in families and everything, if if one of them dies, do they notice? Are they upset? Yeah, it seems that way with with killer whales in my experience. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell because you... I don't know of anybody who's actually watched a, a killer whale die and and take its last breath, but you know there there have been cases where you know a well known killer whale was there one day and gone the next, and sometimes you can see that they're on their way out because their body condition is so bad, they've lost so much um, body fat, and and you just know that their chances of recovering is very slim. But yeah, there, there's a story from some colleagues of mine around here, and. When these two adult male killer whales lost their mother, they swam several circles around the island that they were nearby, calling and calling and calling, uh, almost as if they were trying to locate her. 
and before finally settling down and and perhaps coming to grips with the fact that she was gone and you know so so that's that's a relatively a good indication that they were they were mourning or or at least upset that that she wasn't around gosh yeah i know it's hard to like think about intelligence in other species like compared to us but you know do they have a a rich inner life like you know i know that when there is issues with sea world a lot of it is also like that they that they cannot just be so contained to a small area that they need more stimulation that they need more freedom you know what is their yeah. inner life like or to the extent that you can know that i know we often grapple with this question of who they are and uh, you know that's not something that's easily answerable you know with scientific methods but it's it's always on my mind and you know you can kind of summarize it by saying that they're they're very complex and looking at their brain for example it's it's far more complex than our own brains and the more we learn about them the more complex we realize that they are even getting back to your question gabby about an answer came to mind concerning you know adult males having a a greater chance of dying after their mothers disappear and that that's seems to be the case where you know even an adult male that that may under normal circumstances have 10 or 20 more years left to go if his mom dies uh, the, the chances of him dying in the next year or two are far greater and so wow. the you know whether or not they're dying of broken hearts or or just because you know their their ability to feed themselves has has dwindled because they rely on on those prey sharing opportunities that their mother provides late into adulthood we don't know but you know needless to say they're complex enough and these social relationships are so important to them that that they really do impact uh, their own health and and you see them taking care of each other when when they have lost family members and that's that's a very compelling thing to think about as well because if an animal whether or not it's a, a youngster a juvenile or an adult and it does lose its mom there's a good chance that it will get adopted by another closely related female so you you see a lot of adoptions in killer whale society and some of them you can predict you you know you look at a pod and you see that a mom has died and you think okay well that one's probably going to get adopted by its grandmother but if grandma still is of a reproductive age and has young offspring of her own she'd be less likely to make that adoption because she already has mouths to feed and in those kinds of cases um you see uh, aunties um, more likely to make adoptions and and sometimes unrelated females from other families who have not been able to have offspring of their own and and that's the case as well where i can think of a few a few examples off the top of my head where uh, like for example d9 a whale that that uh, has been around for a long time she's never had a viable offspring of her own but when c31's mother died uh, about 10 years ago now, that little juvenile C31 um, just started traveling with D9 and they've, they've been inseparable ever since. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <gasps> so this is the thing. I wonder how this works with conservation, like getting the idea out there that we are not the only beings that, that, have families that have complex, you know, minds that like mm -hmm. that we are not, you know, how do how do you get that 
like, I guess, you know, you're coming on this podcast, but like, how do you get that out there in the world? Because there's so many different views of whales. Like, I feel like on one side, there's like the Lisa Frank folder, cutesy, like free willy type thing. And then there's on the other side, there's like the whale killed their trainer. How do we let people know this? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, it's hard to unpack. And, you know, I, I think it really comes down to just understanding that they are very complex and that you can't really look at one behavior without properly contextualizing it with, with everything else that these whales are all about. You know, I, I grew up knowing, you know, that if I was like, if I was looking at one individual whale that I knew that, you know, I, I could make a bet and, you know, my, I bet my entire life savings that all the other whales from that family were nearby. And that's just the case. I mean, it, it's, it, it almost never happens that, that they're not with their families. They travel around with them all the time. But having said that, you know, I, I also made an observation a few years ago, which, which surprised me and, and surprised a lot of people who've been studying killer whales for years. And, and that was um, watching a, an adult male and his post-reproductive mother uh, kill an infant from an unrelated pod. And, and that kind of broke down a lot of this, um, a, a lot of our, our understanding of these whales and that it just added more context to it. You know, like humans, you know, we, we, we love each other. We have these, these deep relationships with each other, but, but still some people do terrible things and, and some of them do it for terrible reasons, but other times they do it out of necessity and, uh, and it's not acceptable, but the same goes in, in a lot of primate societies and uh, and cetacean societies are no different they're they're very complex and and they're doing what they do to benefit their own inclusive fitness so that that their own genes can be carried forward uh, whatever the cost why did they kill the baby well we don't know i it's it's a good question but when i started diving into the literature i i didn't know a lot about infanticide at the time but when i started looking at it, I, I found that when this happens in most animal societies, it's uh, a sexually selected behavior. And, you know, it's typically done by adult males so that they can end lactation amenorrhea or, or postpartum infertility. And uh, once that calf is gone, the female comes back into a fertile state much more quickly and they can they can use it as a mating opportunity. So they're they're basically forcing that to happen and you know whether that happened in this case or not i'm not too sure it, it doesn't seem like it did because that happened a few years ago and and the female um who had her infant taken um has had another calf since but we're not quite sure who the father is and if it is the one who killed her other calf he waited some time before impregnating her so when that whale goes a little bit older I hope to to biopsy it and and uh, maybe get a better understanding of who the father is, but I'll wait till it's a, a bit bigger and uh, before doing that. Yeah, you can't judge all of human society on like Ted Bundy, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> We're gonna take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. How does mating work with these whales? That's a good question. And in the wild, it's it's never been seen with killer whales. And it's uh, it was only first seen in humpbacks a few years ago. 
And they lived up to their names. Yeah, right. But finally. (laughs) 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 Yeah. But uh, there's there's complex mating strategies from sperm competition, you know, some, some populations, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of female choice going on and, you know, it it really depends. I think even some species have, have a bunch of different strategies that they use depending on the situation, but physically it's just a matter of, of getting belly to belly with a member of the opposite (laughs) sex and, and uh, making it happen. Uh huh. Are they only procreating hmm. with like other family members, or are they make only doing it with people in other other whales and other pods? Like, is there some thought to that? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the big questions when uh, years ago, before I began studying killer whales, it was one of the questions. Well, if they're if they're always in their families, then how do they avoid inbreeding? And it kind of goes back to what I said about the acoustic dialect. You know, they they know who's in their family, they know who's not based on sound, probably also on sight because they spend a lot of time close to each other. But this doesn't mean that they won't socialize and get together with other groups. And when they do, you know, they may only spend a couple days or a few hours with other groups. But when they do, there's all kinds of social exchanges happening from, from conflicts to mating to long-term bonds. You know, sometimes you see unrelated families traveling together for weeks and uh, they just, they just got it going on. You know, it's a, uh, it's they a good made friends. They, yeah. They've made good friends and they just do that. Aww. So you gave them names that were like by number and letter, but, and I wasn't expecting that. Do you get attached to them? Do they have other names? Like, are you like, Hey, that's Arlene. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, so it was an alphanumeric situ- um, system that was used to first, you know, give give names to these these whales, um, the whales, at least the populations that I'm working with, and most most whale populations around the world actually have have alphanumerics. But in addition to alphanumerics, if they're a whale that uh, is fairly well known, you know, that researchers or just people, you know, whale watchers or members of the public are seeing quite often. But yeah, they definitely get given names, and and some whales have several names. Like I, <laughs> I, I heard of a humpback whale recently that had eleven names because it's been seen in so many places, and and each group of researchers and and whale watchers have different name for the same individual. There was a rabbit, a white rabbit that lived in my neighborhood, and we found out that everybody had a different name for the rabbit. We would see the rabbit around, and everybody would be like, that's Fetty Hop. And I'd be like, what? That's Benicula. Like, everybody (laughs) had a different name. (laughs) What kind of names do the whales get? Well, yeah, so T73B, uh, his his name is, uh, someone um, gave him the name of Queenus, and I, I'm not sure what that means, um, but it's it's in the local uh, language, Kwakwala, uh, First Nations language. And I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's it's Quenus or Quenus. He's also known as a blur up in Alaska. And I've I've referred to him as Oliver. So you know, he's got four names right off the top of my head. Aww. I'm wondering if for better or for worse, your research of these whales helps to prove the impact of climate change. Yeah, getting back to that, yeah, there, there's certainly a lot going on as far as cetacean populations and climate change, especially the the further you go north. And it's really not clear in all cases what's going to happen, but there's there's a lot of ecological changes taking place and there's a lot of concern. I think 
we published a review um, recently, some, some colleagues and I, on the impacts of climate change to cetacean populations, um, especially moving forward. And, and one of the most obvious things that, that will happen is that a lot of populations will have a, a poleward shift in distribution because as, as the planet warms up, you know, these, these whales will have to go further north to, mm. to attain their preferred water temperature and, and, and ecological, you know, these ecological relationships that they need to maintain moving forward. Either that or they'll, they'll have to adapt and some populations are very good at adapting and have done so over thousands of years as the climate has changed so much in, in previous times. And um, other populations will, will really suffer because of it, because, you know, they, they, they can't adapt. They've kind of pigeonholed themselves, either where they live or, or what they rely on to, to get by. Um, you'll find that some populations of cetacean are are culturally conservative in that sense. They they won't branch out to exploit new resources because they've never been taught to do so. And actually, taking up new behaviors is is not something that seems to be encouraged in the population. So, how populations like that may survive moving forward is is a good question. But other populations like bowhead whales, for example, provide a really good example of uncertainty. Bowhead whales only live in the Arctic and they're a very ice-associated species. Uh, They live in close association with sea ice year-round. But as that sea ice melts, you know, it's it's thought that their range is going to shrink. But what seems to be happening is that as sea ice melts, uh, more and more habitat for these whales is opening up and they're getting more well-fed and their population is growing and they're also branching out and, and actually increasing their, their range, which has been a little bit unexpected. And it's not quite sure how long that, that can go on for until there's no ice left. And then, and then we have, you know, they actually have a big problem because there's no more room for them to survive. So, wow. yeah, it's not clear yet what the impacts of climate change will be for species like that over the short term and long term and how they will balance out. How varied are the behaviors of these whales from, is the right word, species or from type to type? You know, like, are there specific, mm-hmm. like, behaviors that are, you know, humpback whales versus killer whales? Like, are, is there a lot of variation between the different kinds? Absolutely. And especially as it relates to, to what they need to do to get by. So when it comes to resources and exploiting resources, you see a lot of differences. Like killer whales and, and sperm whales, for example, they they've learned how to take advantage of fishing operations all over the world. And when commercial fishing operations are, are pulling in long lines of, uh, of caught fish, these killer whales and sperm whales will, will just, they've, they've learned exactly how it works and they'll come along and steal every fish off the line <laughs> as it comes up. <laughs> They're like, thanks guys. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's a bit of a problem. You won't see baleen whales doing that though, because they're they're feeding on on just zooplankton or small fish, and and they have a lot of unique ways of doing that. One of the interesting behaviors we watch develop in the the area where I work here in British Columbia is uh, we refer to it as trap feeding because these humpback whales will will just sit there at the surface with their mouth open and wait for small diving birds to chase fish into their mouth 
And when these birds have chased enough fish in, they just close their mouths. And so it's like they set this trap and and uh, they don't even have to work for it. You know, it's, That's it's how beautiful. I eat. <laughs> I eat the exact same one. It works, right? Wow. So before we move on, what is something that like you really want our audience to take away about about these like majestic creatures? And what can we do? Like, is there anything we can we can avoid or do that will be helpful? Yeah. And, and I think it comes down to, to where you live. And so, you know, I always tell people, at least in, in this part of the world where I am, where, where we're very concerned about the whales having enough food to eat and also being able to find the food in the first place. A couple of the things we can do is, is just be cognizant of our acoustic impact in their environment. So, you know, realizing that, that boats make a lot of noise and can interfere with, with whales' behavior and their ability to survive. Obviously, whales hit boats sometimes too. And so just keeping an eye out for, for that is, is something that people can do. But, you know, you can take it a, a step further too. Like uh, a lot of the people that I know, and including myself, we fish. You know, we, we like to eat fish as well. And as the salmon stocks dwindle in this area, I find that that being more knowledgeable about, you know, which stocks you're targeting and uh, whether or not they're actually abundant enough to continue doing so, uh, regardless of what the law says. You know, as sometimes, you know, the law says you can take a certain amount of fish and at other times you can't. But also just being up to date with all that information yourself and, and making your own decisions about you know, what you want your own impact on the environment to be, keeping in mind that, that we have to coexist with, with other species in it. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think on a broader scale, that's really what it comes down to is, is finding ways to, to coexist and, and evolve, continue evolving alongside our cetacean neighbors. You know, we, we share the planet with them. And if we want to continue doing so, we, we need to be cognizant of, of what that looks like moving forward. You know, these these populations are strong and they're resilient, but they're also very fragile. That's so beautiful. I know. I love the sentiment of we share the world with them. Oh, we always think that we we run the world, but we do not. We are sharing it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so beautiful. So would you like to play a silly game show? <laughs> Yeah, I would. <laughs> okay. It's um it's not about whales, but it is fun, hopefully. You and Gabby are gonna be my contestants in this game called Hypotheticals. I'm gonna give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Does that sound good? Yeah, I look forward to it. There's almost never a winner. So here we go. <laughs> Let's think of it as a thought experiment. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You are perpetually late, and it causes a lot of issues with your partner of two years because it makes them feel unloved and disrespected. They're throwing themselves a party to celebrate a big work promotion at their favorite bar, and they teasingly say that if you don't show up on time, they'll have to find another date for the big night. Uh-oh. You joke back and agree. You end up being an hour late. And when you arrive, they are making out with a random person who was also at the bar and introducing this new person to all of your friends as their date for the night. When you confront them, they point to your earlier agreement. Would you stay with this cheater? And and this is me, like, in my current 
state. Yeah, you know, this like, is you. This yeah. is you, Jared. <laughs> okay. And so are we both answering? Yeah. Yeah, we both answer, but you can ask follow-up questions if you want. Okay. I mean, to me, it's it's kind of clear that that it's it's my own fault, you know, like I, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I've been warned. Um so so yeah, I mean, unless my lateness was on purpose and and I was late because you know, I did the relationship was was something that I I wasn't as interested in anymore and 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 what have you. But if if it was just my own damn ignorance that that led to the situation, I I would stay and and hopefully use it as an excuse, like as a reminder to like not be late in the future, you know. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that I show up late to teach them a lesson. No. Which I would do. That's terrible. How can they be demanding perfection from other people that they're not providing? What do you mean? What have they done wrong? If they're late all the time and then they tell everybody, no, you're they tell late me all the time. Late. You're late oh, all the time. I'm late. Yes. You're the one who's always late and it's a really big, important day for them. And they said, don't be late. And then you're an hour late. Oh, then that's on me. I'm a yeah. shithead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's on me then. So you both would stay. Yeah, I, I, I messed up and that's my fault. Yeah. But, you know, unless for me personally, I think if the partner was, you know, also, you know, it's kind of like a last straw for them. And, you know, they had said, well, you know, if you're late, this is what's going to happen. And so you knew the consequences. Right. So, you, you know, I could want to stay, but but at that point, perhaps they moved on. So, <laughs> yeah, they unfortunately do fall in love with that random person at the bar. OK. You actually end up becoming a thruple with the person at the oh, bar. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's are really that, nice. Is that person on time? <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah. Good. So it's somebody's one, it, there for my partner. It helps. <laughs> yeah. It, it could it could be the, you know, the part of the recipe that's needed to achieve that balance. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot what I did for this one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Your child, 14, has a hard time getting up in the morning, and it's often a battle to get them out of bed. In order to incentivize them to get up, you start to do a sexy strip tease with loud music in their room every day at 7 a.m. and only stop once they get in the shower. This is the only thing that gets them out of bed, but it's also horrifying to them. Are you a terrible parent? Did you say music is playing? Yeah, loud music and you're doing a very sexy strip tease. I think you're a good parent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I, first of all, I want to go back to having to get out of bed at 7 a.m. to go to school, which I think is a crime. I know, but I there's no time like for that, Gabby. Six o'clock, <laughs> and I don't think there's any reason that children need to be at school that early in the morning. I don't think that's good for learning, and I think it sucks. So I'll do that for a little while, and then the next year I'll put my kid in, like, a better school. <laughs> so I'm a great parent. What do you think, Jared? I'm kind of horrified at the thought of myself doing uh, like a strip tease to to my own kid, like, which I don't have. But if I did, then um, it, I, I just can't come to terms with that. So that's fair. So I I think that on in that sense, I I would have to say like I'm a bad parent because I'm not being true to myself. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. I mean, yeah, it's just like that relationship. 
I, I just couldn't get down with that. I don't think. I mean, like anything can change. But Parenthood changes you. <laughs> that's what I heard. Yeah. No, I'm joking. That's objectively horrible. <laughs> I, well, I, it could be effective. All right. <laughs> Our final game, which is our brand new game. Would you stay with this liar? Mm. <laughs> this one's so stupid. Okay. Allison's been doing this for like years. Two years. So it's like I'm really yeah. at the bottom of the barrel. You run a small business with your best friend of 20 years. Your best friend is in charge of making all of the charitable contributions for your shared business. Whenever you've asked about it, they've always mentioned donating, donating to cancer research funds and to the local shelter. Oh, no. One day, you discover some paperwork that shows for that the last 10 years, your business partner has exclusively been donating to an organization that gives Tamagotchis to children. <laughs> What's a Tamagotchi? What's a, a Tamagotchi? A Tamagotchi is, a, is a, a small digital toy that is like a... Was popular a, a, in like the 90s. 90s, yeah. That like the, you could care for the Tamagotchi and like you would feed it and stuff. And so when you confront them about it, they say that they loved their Tamagotchi so much and just wanted to spread joy. Would you keep working with this liar? Here's the thing. I think that they're embezzling money because there's no way that there's a charity for Tamagotchis. You look and there is. Been... There is a charity for Tamagotchis. And did they make it and it's an offshore bank account? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like are they on the board of directors? Exactly. They are on the board of directors, but it is real because there's tons of footage of children receiving Tamagotchis and being confused. Uh, this is money laundering. Yeah, like I'm still confused about what a Tamagotchi is. <laughs> Aren't you? You? What'd you say? How old are you? Forty-two. You're an elder millennial. You didn't have Tamagotchis. Okay, I'll read the description N to I, make I it. I don't think I ever had one. No. It was like a huge thing. Do you know Beanie Babies? Oh yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. so it was like around the time of Beanie Babies. It's a handheld digital pet. <laughs> so it's okay. a digital pet that you that you care for. <laughs> I'll show you a picture. I'll show you a picture. Okay. So okay. it looks it looked like this. And then like okay. you would push those buttons yeah. and feed it. You sure never saw this before? I've never seen one. I, I might have seen them, but I was just like my brain was somewhere else. Did they not have this in Canada? I don't know. Like yeah, it's not something that that I have any recollection of at all. Wow. Well, he was too busy actually caring for living animals. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, but yeah, to answer the question, re regardless of my limited understanding of of these Tamagotchis, I I think it's highly inappropriate that uh, my business partner would would be doing this. Um, even if the Tamagotchis were spreading joy and and um, forget it, relationship over. <laughs> wow! Even though your business is very lucrative, you would just walk away. Yeah. So that that's that's more context and. <laughs> Oh, how much how much money are we talking about? Like you make like approximately two million dollars a year. Wow. And, and what percentage is going towards this Tomagachi charity? That's what you take home is two million. Mm -hmm. And then wow. they they donate three hundred thousand dollars a year to the Tomagachi organization. <laughs> I did just Google, did they have Tamagotchis in Canada? And they absolutely did. Okay. So I I think everybody's lying Don't and I would not hang out knowing. with this. I would not stay with this liar. 
Yeah. And also, that's a good point. The fact that they lied about it. I mean, that's right. that's really, really upsetting right there. There'd have to be, you know, a couple meetings just to get to the bottom of it. Define a new relationship altogether or just cancel it, you know, like sell your shares and and book it. <laughs> I wonder if Tamagotchi has ever caused such a disruption before now. I bet it has. Remember, my like my mom told me that she was trying to. We weren't allowed to have them in school. She had to like feed them in court. <laughs> she was like in court, being like, "Sorry, Your Honor, I have to make sure the Tamagotchi doesn't die." <laughs> Whoa! So it, what happens if they die? Would you like start over again? Or- yeah, you have to start over. But it's like your kid. I mean, your it was like your kid was like in fifth grade, and they'd be like, "My Tamagotchi died." They're crying oh or whatever. Gosh. Maybe a thing that was meant to teach children about morality, mortality. Hey. See, maybe it is a valuable thing to donate $300,000 worth of. Responsibility and mortality. <laughs> I, I guess, but but you can do that with real animals. And I guess, you know, they if they died, then, then it would be different because they're real animals. But I, I still think the uses are limited, though. I agree. Wow. You should you should leave. They have not they don't have the most sound judgment. That's uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about all the wonderful work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. Well, rate it uh, www.baseatology.org is uh, a good place to start. That's that's where some of the work I'm involved with happens or at least people can find out more about it through that website. Yeah, that that's about it. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This was so lovely. Yeah, it's been fun chatting with you both. Thank you for having me. Of course. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about boredom. Take two. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topic. X, 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 baby. 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 Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Hello, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) Hi, hi, hi. So I guess I didn't realize that boredom and productivity are maybe tied together, but I think they're different. I don't know. I I think you can be busy doing a lot of things and still be bored. Mm. Boredom for me is like, I picked the topic originally because, you know, recovering from knee surgery, I've just sort of been like sitting on my couch a lot. I haven't really been able to go out or do much. Now I'm a lot better, but it was just this idea. I've always been upset that I, I don't have something to fill the void when I'm bored, that I don't have a hobby or something that takes my attention when I have just like an hour or two and nothing to do. Well, what, what do you mean? Like a video game or like a sport yeah like a video game or if i like knit or if i like crocheted or if i just had something tamagotchi (laughs) jesus (laughs) and when i'm bored that is what really amps up my anxiety and my ennui yeah because then i think oh i'm bored so i should be working but you can be working and be bored tell me about that melissa This was me about like a month ago because I was doing so much work and it was all very repetitive. And so I talked to my therapist about it and she was like, why don't you try acting? And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I've already tried acting and it was fine at the time. But and that's when I reached out to my potential agent, who's now my agent, to see if she would rep me. 
And then she kicked my butt into gear about getting this pilot that I've been working on, getting that done. And then I got out of my slump of like being bored. Mm-hmm. I get, I remember I got so angry at myself because I was like doing rewrites on this thing. And I thought the rewrites were making the script boring. And I just was like, I was on the phone with the producer and I was like, I'm bored. I've bored myself. I'm boring. I'm reading this and I'm bored. I'm writing this and I'm bored. And so then I have to be like, okay, what would I want to read that is like salacious and gripping and whatever? That's hard because you have to like milk your little brain. Yeah. Like you have to like take your little brain juices and be like, come on, get things to come out of them. You know, it's hard. I mean, look, Mal, we were like joking about like, I'm like, I'm so tired. My job is so hard. But then I was like, I'm not a doctor. I just sit here and like type, type, type my little stories. So like, but it is exhausting on your brain because you just like everything is coming out of your brain. And so it's so easy for me to like bore myself or to be like, oh, my God, I'm writing this. So like I know all the twists and turns. So now I'm just bored reading it. And like getting feedback from other people can be really helpful, like sending them something you're writing and be like, maybe this will be interesting to you in some way. I don't know. So that's been nice. But boredom is a killer for me because it makes me think I could be doing better. I could be writing more. I should be doing something life. I go through this whole thing where I'm like, life is so short and I need to like go out and hike all the Mount Kilimanjaro. I don't know. I'm like, I literally just want a hobby. (laughs) Why haven't I seen the world, guys? Why haven't I gone and seen the world? I'm bored. There's places in Asia I've never been to. I'm bored. The world is my oyster. Go get you a, a, what's the metaverse thing? I don't want to go in the metaverse. (laughs) I do not want to go in the metaverse. But like, you're right. Like the world is, I was like, yeah, look, go on YouTube and look up stuff you don't know. Learn things. Get a, my neighbor has a disc that's like four discs about the fall of Rome. What, get, learn about that, Gabby. What, there's nothing to be bored about. There's ton, the world is large and there's histories of everything you don't even know about. There's no reason to be bored in your tiny pea brain. Yeah. God, you're so mean to yourself all the time. I'm, well, I'm in a mood today. You don't have a tiny pea brain. You're just in a mood. Yeah, I'm in a mood today. And I feel like I don't take advantage. I'm like, you only have a certain amount of time to live and look at you. You don't do anything. You do plenty. I've never been to Australia. Okay, so what? (laughs) There's probably places in California you haven't been. So what? That is very true. I was looking up places to vacation with Mal (laughs) and Mal was like, you know that? Like, I was like, we got to fly 14 hours to Panama. Mal's like, you know that like there's places in like Colorado we haven't been. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> I've been struggling that I get so bored in class. Oh, and it's like, that's a different type of boredom. <laughs> but it's like frustrating because I'm like, and I think part of it for me is like, I have a really hard time with anything that's more than two hours. Mm. And so these classes are three hours long. And uh. I just go, I go into them already with such a fear of being bored, you know? And so... I was in class this week and I was like, everything he's saying is very interesting. He's a great professor. If I was like having a conversation about this with somebody, I would be very intrigued. Like, why am I so bored? And I think it's just because I have this strong association with class being boring. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know how to break that association. You fall asleep? I can't. You're in person. But I'm on my phone. I'm like a terrible student. 
There's no reason for three hour classes. There's no reason. You know, as I plug, as I head into this like final year of school, like I got to figure out a way not to dread the boredom because I get so worried about being bored. And then it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, someone's talking at you. You're not having a conversation. They're just talking towards you. But I mean, that's a podcast, right? And I love listening to podcasts. I love, I actually, my favorite way to learn is is auditory. Like I, I don't read nonfiction, but I like love to listen to podcasts all about so many different topics. Yeah. But I think I just have this mental block where I'm like, class is boring. School has been boring. School was boring. What if you wear headphones in class? Oh, <laughs> so it's that's like funny. a podcast. And then it tricks your brain into thinking it's a podcast. Yeah. But also when you're listening to podcasts, are you sitting still no. in a classroom or are you doing stuff? Right. Exactly. I know. I wish I could like be in class while I'm on a walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also yeah. like, I don't know. It's sad that school is boring or that it's not presented in a way that's more interesting because or that we have these associations because learning is great. Mm-hmm. You should be learning. I really think it's the amount of time. Like, I really exactly. think if these classes were two hours, I would have a totally different relationship to them. 100 percent too fucking long. Yeah. 100%. It's like I said, kids shouldn't have to get up at 7 a.m. for school. Agree. There's no yeah. reason for it. Get there at 10. Be, a, your, be, uh, be on your second cup of coffee of the day. Get ready to learn. You know what I mean? As a child? <laughs> yeah. Kids drink coffee, right? No. I think I need to get oh. back into painting. Yeah. Maybe that would be nice for me. I really, I just am so jealous of people with like an easy hobby they can do at home. You can paint in class. Ooh, paint while you're doing your class. Oh, yeah, that would go well. <laughs> or bring like markers. Yeah, or draw. <laughs> I don't know. I just have like anxious times of the day where, or like, you know, like if it's like I'm done with stuff at like 6 p.m., then it's like, I wish I had just like a hobby to take me from like six to seven. So I'm not watching TV for like as long every night kind of thing. Yeah, Watching TV is a hobby. Is it? You've got to refrain your brain. That's true. But a lot of times I'm not even that interested in the TV show. So I'm also on my phone. <laughs> that also the overstimulation might be the problem too. Yeah. yeah. The massive overstimulation. Because that's why I don't want to meditate. Because I'm like, what am I going to think my own thoughts? Ugh. <laughs> It's hard. I really have to try. And like, I, I I think it's worth trying. Yeah. In class, do you take notes on a computer or do you take notes by hand? Hand. What if you use different color pens? Would that help? Do you think? Oh, that could be fun. Gels. Gel pens. It's also hard because right now this class that I'm in doesn't go towards my new degree. Mm. So there's like literally no reason for me to be in it. The reason to be in it is to to expand your brain in your time on Earth. Or I to know. learn how to prepare yourself for your other classes. That's why my neighbor yeah. Dita, she's old, but she said she's like, I only li- read and listen to and watch nonfiction because there's so much to learn in the world. And she knows everything. She knows stuff <laughs> about everything. Pretend that you're a character in a TV show that's taking this class. And you're like, I need to know everything that happens in this class so that I can write a character who is taking this class. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I just came up with it. And I think it might, I sometimes thinking of things that are boring, I'll be like, well, this is good to do because maybe I'll need to one day write a character who's doing this. Yeah. That's just my suggestion, guys. I don't know. I'm in a bad mood. So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you still doing the episode despite, despite not feeling your best. 
Well, you know, I was very excited to talk to Mr. Wales. (laughs) (laughs) What do we rate this episode? I will rate this episode 73 out of 57 unique sounds from whale family pods. That actually, it reminds me of humans because don't you have in your family like your inside jokes or your way of talking Mm -hmm, or whatever? Like it was so human. Oh my God. Wild. I will rate it five out of four. I almost said five out of six. And you know what? That's my vibe. That's my vibe. Five out of six. I'm sorry. And I'll be in a better mood next week. No need to apologize. 40 out of 25 thought experiments. Ooh. Well, this was just between us. Thank you to Jared Towers for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. I don't know why I said this was just between us as if people listening had no idea. Anyway. Produced by Melissa DeMonts, edited by Coco Lorenz, executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at foreverdogteam to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, emotional support lady Substack for Allison, patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn for me, and on Instagram at she is not Melissa, at JBU Podcast, at Allison Raskin, and at Gabby Road. Bye. Bye. Forever. Yeah.